Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. If you don't know much about how we do things, we love to take books of the Bible and preach our way through, and we're jumping into Genesis today, and what we're going to do is take basically 11 weeks to walk through the first 11 chapters, and then we'll probably take a break and do some other stuff before circling back, but I think this is going to be really, really shaping for our church. So I'm really excited because today we've got Kevin Colley that's going to be preaching for us, and I've spent all week with Kevin, uh, me and Kevin and three other uh, lead pastors from different parts of of the country, we all got together just to strengthen each other, to pray with one another, and to just try to try to figure out how to grow as leaders and as men. It was a really fun time, and I just I I love the Collie family. I love you guys so much. They are they are the most like so genuine and full of care and full of just like sincere devotion to Jesus. So I love you guys like crazy. Thanks for serving us today. Hey, would you stand with me for the reading of the Word of God? The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 3, verses 8 through 9. The word of God speaks to us. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? This is God's word to us. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, um, that question that God asks is an amazing illustration and, and window into the heart of the God of the universe for humanity. It's not something where he's pursuing Adam and Eve to rub their noses in their sin or to tackle them. He's actually like inviting them into something. It's a relational question. It's not a question of location. And I, and I pray it is the question that um, undergirds all of our time together in Genesis over the next three months or so. Um, I, I'm not preaching the entirety of Genesis this morning. In fact, I'm not even going to really get into the depth of those verses. What I want to do is I want to lay out for us why we think we need to be in the book of Genesis at this time as a church. A, a few points or directives on how we read the book of Genesis together. And I just want to lay before you some of my burdens. I think Andrew and Sean and Brandon and Aaron and others might represent them differently. But I think the burdens are going to be the same for like what we as pastors at Frontline are praying God will do in us as one church in five locations at this season as we submit to God's word. So let's pray and ask for his help and we'll dive into it together. Father. I love that like, we even sang about you coming after us this morning. You are a pursuing God, and if you weren't, we would have no hope. Because though we're created in your image and created for your glory, what Genesis and our own experience tells us is we have rebelled against you and we've run away. What kind of God comes after us? to love us, to heal us, 
to cleanse us, to forgive us. God, thank you that you are the way you are. Thank you that you are the way you are. I pray that you would give us deeper insight into your character. You would give us more awareness of your presence, more experience of your power. God, would you give us the ability to submit our lives under your plan? And I'm I'm excited to be with my brothers and sisters this morning and to declare with them that you're Lord of everything. You're Lord of all. This is your world, God. Help us to learn who we are in it, how we fit in it, what you purpose for it, and how to live in it. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So I have a friend that for a season in my life and a long time, I wanna say like seven to 10 years, our schedules overlapped in such a way that we got to talk for like 10 or 15 minutes multiple times a week, and because we both have a passion for food, we shared breakfast together at least twice a month. We talked a lot, long season, lots of conversation, not just on the details of what was going on in each one of our lives, but both of us were really passionate to see people developed and grow and change. It it was a unique burden that he and I both shared and continue to share. He's a good man. Now what was different between he and I is this man is not a follower of Jesus. In fact, when it comes to religious conviction, the closest thing he would even step to admitting or saying, I hold to these tenets, is a cult called the Ramtha School of Enlightenment. It's represented under other names as the Landmark Education Forum. That was the closest he would go to religious dogma. And I say that because though he and I were very zealous for men and women to grow as human beings, we had radically different opinions on what was wrong with human beings and how what's wrong gets fixed for human beings. In fact, our conversations would almost always come off the rails when we got to this point. He would say, hey, Kevin, you know what I believe about who we are and where we are. And the way he would summarize that is his sincere belief was that the earth is a spaceship. And there are three kinds of people on the spaceship. There are passengers on spaceship earth, there are crew members on spaceship earth, and there are saboteurs on spaceship earth. And the thing that my friend firmly believes is you get to choose. You didn't get to choose to be placed on this spaceship called Earth, but you get to choose. Are you gonna be a passenger and just complain about the peanuts? Or are you gonna be a crew member and get up and serve? Or are you gonna be a saboteur and actually thwart the mission of the spaceship? And every time we would come to this point in conversation, I would just scratch my head and say, hey, there's things I gotta understand below what you're talking about. I mean, like, question one, who's flying the spaceship? He would always say to me, sincerely, it doesn't matter. It only matters that you choose to be a crew member, a passenger, or a saboteur. I'd be like, no, 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 it does matter. Where is the spaceship going? He would say, it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is you choose to be a crew member, a passenger, or a saboteur. I would say, hey, but, but, but who created the spaceship? It doesn't matter. 
What only matters is whether you choose to be a crew member, a passenger, or a saboteur. And I would always say, hey man, help me understand if I don't know who built the ship, who's flying the ship, or where the ship is going, how I can even tell who is a crew member, or a passenger, or a saboteur. Now I tell you this story because this is why we need the book of Genesis. It's why we need the book of Genesis. It answers all the questions for us and it roots us in this massive, glorious arc of this happy, loving, merciful God who not because he needed anything, but because he desired to share the delight he has in himself, he created a place and populated it with a people. Like, this is the story of Genesis. It tells us who's in charge. It tells us the design. It tells us where we're going. It tells us why we're here. It tells us what's wrong with the universe. And this may be crazy. I realize I'm prone to overstate almost everything in my life, but I think Like there has never been a time, this is my belief, and I'm turning my belief, which is a nine, up to 11 to make a point. I I don't know if there's ever been a time that's more important for the church to submit themselves to the book of Genesis in this cultural moment. Now I realize all of God's word is living and applicable to all of God's people at every moment in time, but there's something about the moment we're standing in where I believe we need Genesis more perhaps than the people of God have ever needed the book of Genesis, at least in the modern age. And the most basic reason I would offer for why we need Genesis is we need a biblical worldview. We need a biblical worldview. Now, some of you would be like scratching your head and say, what are you you talking about, Pastor? I have a biblical worldview. No, most of us, if not all of us, possess biblical language. And many of us in this room would agree to biblical truths. But the problem is we orient biblical language and our understanding of biblical truths around a grid that is not biblical. That's what a worldview is, by the way. It's like the grid around which you orient everything else in your life. It's how you make sense of all the stuff that comes at you. It's like a sorting bucket that we have for everything we encounter. And hey, I don't think we're doing this on purpose. It's how worldview functions. It's, it's something that you do subconsciously. You're just constantly arranging all the data you receive and all the experiences you have in accordance with the worldview or the grid you possess. You you may think I'm crazy, but I think the majority of us, if not all of us, are compelled and controlled way more by a technological worldview and a therapeutic worldview than we are a biblical worldview at all. What, what, What do I mean when I say that? Well, in 1992, the author Neil Postman, who was an educator and cultural commentator, he wrote a book called Technopoly. The book feels like it was written this morning, by the way. And in Technopoly, Postman says a technopoly exists when a culture deifies technology. When we take technology and elevate it to the place of God, Postman says, we have a technopoly. Here's his specific definition. A technopoly, and I quote, is a culture that seeks its authorization in technology. 
finds its satisfactions in technology and takes its orders from technology. Now think about this. What he's saying is, a culture has a technological worldview when it looks to technology for permission. It looks to technology for answers, that's what satisfactions are, sense-making, and it takes its orders from technology. What should I do? A technopoly exists or a technological worldview exists when we start to look to technology to give us permission to solve our problems. And you would never use this kind of language, but to be for us, Lord. And you're like, come on, man. Now, now you're really overstating things. But tell me this, why is it that almost every problem we face, be it our sleep, our productivity, our relationships, our weight, we look for an app to be for us the answer. Well, if I just get this new app, then I will solve all the problems I have. Wait, wait, wait a minute, this, like, this takes us back to infomercials late at night in the 80s. You remember when you bought the ab rocket? How many of you guys bought the ab rocket? I see a proud hand in the back. Like, you, you put the ab rocket, it's like, you know, if you do this thing, you connect this thing, you do this, you're like, you're shredded with six-pack abs, which they're advertising something now that's like, I just connect something to myself and apparently will look like a Navy SEAL within 24 hours. You read the instructions of the ab rocket and you're like, wait a minute, I have to do a sit-up? No, I, I didn't want to do a sit-up. I wanted to buy a device that solved my problems. And we do that with sleep. We do it with productivity. We do it with our diet. We do it with our relationships. It's not just that we're constantly looking to our phone to feel good when we're anxious or to tell us what to do in the morning or how we're orienting our life. We're actually viewing technology as a solution to all our problems. It's not just that we have a technological worldview. We have a therapeutic worldview as well. Now let me be really clear. I do not have any problem with therapy per se. And I don't have any more beef with psychology than I have with technology. I'm preaching from an iPad for crying out loud. Uh, this isn't like an anti-technology, anti-therapy sermon. The problem is when we elevate psychology to the place of permission giving, meaning making, life answering place. The problem is when we elevate psychology or anything to the level of God. Let's use Postman's categories just quickly for an example. A therapeutic worldview seeks its authorization in therapy, finds its satisfactions in therapy, and takes its orders from therapy. Brothers and sisters, a therapeutic worldview is what happens when we take labels and diagnoses and elevate them from the place of helpful to overarching to commanding to supreme. All due respect, okay? All due respect. God's word can make way more sense out of you to you than any number ever can. God's word can make way more sense out of you, to you, than any other process or practice ever can. 
It's a fascinating thing. We're seeing this not just at Frontline, but we're seeing this in churches across the country where people are receiving counsel from their pastors and then using their therapist or something else as a clearinghouse for whether or not they should respond to this counsel. And I'm not talking about fringe theological issues. I'm not talking about debated matters relating to the end of time or something else. This is basic pastoral exhortation and admonition where a pastor says to someone, hey, this is a basic issue of truth for you and forgiveness for you. You need to have this happen. This is an issue of generosity. This is about conflict resolution. And people are literally responding sincerely. Hey, man, that's really helpful. Thanks for sharing that with me. I need to talk with my Enneagram coach and see what they think about that. I need to float that past my therapist and see what, see what he has to say. Now, this is like fundamental basics of the word of God. I mean, what, what we need, oh my gosh, what we need. We don't need another app. We don't need another app. We don't need another profile. We don't need another session. We don't need another hot take in our life. We need God's word. We need God's word. And I don't say this to the denigration of anything else. I say this to put everything else under the supremacy and the authority and the glory and the perfection of the word of God. Like how many of us are letting therapeutic categories or technological categories or stuff we buy have supreme sense-making power in our lives? That's, that's, what, that's what God alone does, is make sense of your life. And the question I'm inviting us to consider is, if anything else is functioning as the primary sense-making or question-answering force in your life, that reality is for you, God. God. And what I want us to do is step into Genesis and ask God not just to give us biblical language or biblical truths, both of which are critical, but to reshape for all of us together, myself included, for all of us together, a biblical worldview where we start to arrange the word of God and the truths of God around the way God arranges his word and his truths, not through any other grid. That's why we need to be in this book but I'll up the ante a little bit more, even beyond worldview. Every single category, hot topic, contested issue that we're navigating in the world today is addressed and established and engaged head on in the book of Genesis. I just made a catalog for us of like, here's the most pressing issues in our cultural moment and listen to them. All of these Genesis engages and establishes head on. Identity, sex, gender, human bodies, human rights, evil, sin, justice, judgment, relationships, conflict, family systems, how family dynamics degrade into dysfunction, and how families get redeemed. Redemption in general, work in general, rest in general, vocation in general, and Genesis more clearly, more solidly, more soundly than any other place in the universe defines for us what flourishing is all about and how it happens. Genesis is key for us in this moment.
It's key for our worldview. It's key for the issues that our world's telling us that matters. And it's key for us understanding the rest of the Bible. It's like every other book in the Bible is unpacking and establishing what Genesis lays out for us on the ground floor. In fact, almost every book of the Bible quotes Genesis directly if they don't make allusions to it conceptually. Therefore, how we read Genesis matters for whether we read the rest of the Bible faithfully and accurately at all. So let's talk for a second about how we read Genesis. And, and maybe you don't even know this, Genesis is part of the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch was authored primarily by Moses. I say primarily because there's obviously instances of slight editing by other people after Moses' death, and certainly Moses wouldn't have been able to write about his own death, just for one example. But the first five books of the Bible are written primarily by Moses. Now, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are a universal cosmic history of humanity. Chapters one to 11, cosmic universal history of humanity. And then chapters 12 to 50 are a very focused, very specific history of one man, one family, one people that weren't even a people. God made them a people. God said, you, I'm gonna make your family into a people through which I'm gonna bless all the nations of the earth. And chapters 12 to 50 is a history of that man, his family, that people, and how God uses this ragtag pagan hillbilly, which is exactly what he was, to bless all the peoples of the earth. Now what we're gonna focus on is chapters one to 11, at least now, and here's what's important for us to remember all the time. Genesis, like all the rest of the Bible, was written for all humanity, for humankind. There is no one that's exempted from the focus of the entirety of the Bible. And Genesis is written for all of us. But it wasn't written to us. It's a significant distinction. Genesis was written for every tribe, nation, people, tongue, language on the earth. But it wasn't written to every tribe, tongue, people, nation, language. It was written to Israel. And specifically, it was written to them after they were drawn out of slavery of generations underneath a pagan God in a pagan world, in a pagan land. And as God rescues this people, that's only a people because he's decided they'd be his people, he rescues them out of slavery and says, I want to explain to you now who you are. You've had stories told to you about why you exist and why the earth is here and everything else. I'm gonna tell you definitively, says the Lord God, who you are, why you're here, and why that has everything to do with who the Lord God himself is. That's what Genesis is all about. And I say that because when we read Genesis, we have to understand that this is not modern contemporary history like we would imagine it. It's not a modern, contemporary, post-enlightenment science textbook. Some people try to read Genesis like a science textbook and demand that it give answers about, well, how could photosynthesis happen if there wasn't sunlight in 24 hours or more? That's, that's not an unimportant question. It's just not the question that Moses was answering for the people that he was writing it to, right? 
So we, we need to understand that Genesis isn't history as we understand it. It's not science as we understand it. And there are a lot of us that would be tempted to throw out Genesis or just disregard it as if it was some kind of, you know, like Christianized version of Aesop's fables gathered together into this collection of stories. But actually what God is doing for us is something way more significant. Genesis is giving us theology. It's giving us cosmology. I realize I'm giving you $4 words. I'm gonna define them in just a second. It's a struggle for me to spell them, so I'm not trying to flex with you. Genesis has written as theology, cosmology, anthropology, and soteriology. We're gonna define each of these. But I'll give you a second if you're a note taker to write them down. Genesis isn't modern history. It's not modern science. It's not allegory or fable. It's not about good guys and bad guys. It's about God and the world he's created. It's theology, it's cosmology, it's anthropology, and it's soteriology. Let's define those just so we can have a grid through which we read Genesis. Theology simply stated is just a word about God. That's what the word means. So what we're saying is Genesis is God's self-disclosure about who he is, his nature, his character, his divine essence, his glory, his being. Perhaps some of you are familiar with, there's a leading biblical scholar, pastor, preeminent theologian, and pretty good dancer. His name is Aaron Addison, the great Reverend Aaron Addison. Addison says this about the book of Genesis as theology, and I quote, the book of Genesis makes a theological argument about God, creation, humanity, and salvation. And every story, poem, and genealogy is included and masterfully framed up to make this argument. It doesn't answer all your scientific questions because that was never the point. Rather, this book aims to shape your theological vision and worldview. It serves as God's introduction to humanity, revealing his character, his goodness, and his power to us. It shows us what it means for God to be God. So what we have in Genesis is God presenting to us theological portraits of himself, his character, his plan, his power, his presence, his patience. We see God as creator. We see God as judge. We see God as redeemer. He's telling us about himself. And he gives us theological categories to understand him, our world, and everything else through. He gives us theological categories of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This is Genesis as theology, a word about God. Then we see Genesis as cosmology, which cosmology is a word about the cosmos. Now here's what's important to understand, and I think I have understood how significant my worldview is shaped by a naturalistic worldview over the scriptures in the sense that I use the word universe, I don't, or I rarely use the word cosmos. Universe describes just all the stuff out there. Cosmos describes a loving, divine, purposeful ordering of the universe. Therefore, a cosmology is an account of how the origin, 
or how the, the universe originated and how it's been ordered. The fact that we use the word universe and don't use the word cosmos evidences that we have a naturalistic worldview and not a biblical one. And Genesis was written as cosmology. God saying to his people, let me tell you how everything that's out there is ordered and arranged and exists for a, a specific reason to bring me glory, honor, fame, and to give you delight and joy in my presence forever. God says, I've, I've set it all up. I've arranged things in order for a reason. Like that, that's the purpose of how it flows. Now, some of you might say, hey, I've read ancient Near Eastern origin stories. Maybe you took a comparative religions class in college, or maybe you're a skeptic and you're like studying that kind of stuff. But if you've read in that world, or maybe you like read the Epic of Gilgamesh in elementary school, some of you would go like, hey, there's a lot of other ancient Near Eastern stories that sound a lot like Genesis. And the amazing thing is, that is the point. The author of Genesis wrote, not borrowing from those other stories, but in direct defiance of them. He wrote to call other images to mind. So he says, hey, remember how they told you that there were gods that were hungry, that were needy, and so they created all these beings to feed them and take care of them? Let me tell you about the one true God, the one who rescued you from slavery, this God who alone exists in the universe. He doesn't need anything. Before anything existed, God was himself fine, happy, content, delighted. He didn't create you because he needed a sandwich. He created you because in his love and generosity, he wanted you to share in the delight that he had in being himself. You're like, man, that is arrogant of God. It's arrogant of God if he's not the most delightful being in the universe. But if he's the most delightful being in the universe, the most loving thing he can do is share that. And that, that's what God does. And he says, hey, does this sound like Enuma Elish? Does this sound like Epic of Gilgamesh? Let me stand as a prophetic antagonist for all the stories you've been told. This is what Gordon Wenham says in his book on Genesis 1 to 11. He says, the author of Genesis 1 shows that he was aware of other cosmologies. People are like, ah, he's depending on them. No, he's not. That he wrote not in dependence of, on them so much as in deliberate rejection of them. Genesis functions as a prophetic commentary on all the cosmologies of the ancient world. And God says, there's no one like me. There's no one like me in my holiness, in my infinite beauty, in my love, in my generosity. And he writes Genesis to bring us in on that. Genesis as theology. Genesis as cosmology. Now we have Genesis, not just a word about the ordering of the universe, but Genesis as a word about human beings. That's what anthropology is, is a word about man. And in Genesis we see that human beings are the height of creation. And unlike every other being that exists in the universe, human beings are created in the image of God. We see this glorious ordering in Genesis 1. And we see things created according to their kind and according to their kind and arranged and divided according to their kind. 
human beings as the crown of creation were created not according to any other kind, but according to the likeness and image of God himself. Like, so, so we have a word spoken to us about our humanity that we are glorious in our existence and beautiful and glorious though we may be, we're also rebellious, broken, and flawed because human beings renounced the kingship of God over them, having had everything supplied for them, all meaning given to them, they decided that the one commandment they had been given, which really was just, trust me. That was the one thing God had said to them. I mean, he might have said, don't eat from that tree, but what he's saying is, trust me. I've given you everything you need. I've supplied everything you could ever imagine. I'm with you. Trust me. And they said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to trust him. I'll trust myself. I'll be my own king. I'll make my own meaning. I'll supply my own needs. And all hell broke loose, literally, from that moment on in the scriptures. So we're not just beautiful and glorious. We're rebellious and flawed. And because of our flaws, we've been exiled from paradise. Like God created a garden and it's described in very specific terms. I pray you guys get into this in the weeks to come. The garden was created as a temple, a place where human beings could exist unfettered in the presence of God and to just delight in all his fullness and be satisfied by all that he is. And humans screwed it up. We violated the temple. So what happens is humanity from Genesis 3 on is exiled from this garden temple. And does anyone remember when we used to unfold a map to try to figure out where we were? Now we just pull out our phone and we're at the center. Anything wrong with that technological worldview with you? We, we pull out our phone and we're at the center, but in the old days, you folded out a map and tried to figure out where am I? Here's the way the map of creation and humanity functions. From Genesis 3 on, humanity is moving east geographically and relationally. We're getting further and further and further away from what God intended for us. That's who we are as human beings. But that's not the only word Genesis is. It's a word about God. It's a word about the cosmos. It's a word about humanity and what's broken and glorious about us. But it's also a, a soteriology, a word about salvation, a word about how things get fixed. How is what's broken get mended? Can what's tattered be reweaved? Can what's sick be healed? Can what's dead be made alive again? And the book of Genesis says, enthusiastically and with a full throat, yes! Like what's broken can be healed. What's lost can be saved. And we see in the book of Genesis, salvation come through at least four vehicles. We see salvation through blessing, which blessing isn't the thing you say when someone sneezes, or it's not the thing you say when you, you want to say, oh, you poor thing. Blessing is actually God saying, the fullness of my character, the fullness of my essence be upon you. It's not just an attaboy from the Lord Most High. When God blesses something, he actually gives himself to it. So we see salvation come through blessing. We see salvation come through covenant. Covenant is this amazing glorious, majestic thing that humanity sees unfolded for us in the book of Genesis and beyond. 
And covenant is this thing where God says, hey, other people enter into contracts like this, where they say, you uphold your end of the bargain and I'll uphold my end of the bargain. And God says, I enter into covenant differently, where I take on the entirety of the ramifications for your failure on myself. And over and over and over again, we see God reinstating and re, like restating and reinstating his covenant. We see salvation through blessing, salvation, salvation through covenant, salvation through the shedding of blood, which we sing songs about and have communion every week and orient our lives around the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. But without knowing the name of Jesus or having encountered Jesus as the Messiah or even the concept of the Messiah, Adam and Eve get introduced to the concept of salvation through the covering of blood right out of the gates after their rebellion. Do you know how? After they sin, after they eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, the text tells us that they knew they were naked, which previously didn't matter to them. But now it does, and shame has entered the world. And so they're trying to hide themselves with fig leaves. But the scripture tells us that after he blessed them and after he cursed them, that God made garments for the man and his wife. Do you remember that if you've read the story? What did he make the garments out of? Not all at once. Animal skins. Where do you think those animal skins came from? There hadn't been death in the garden up to this point. Adam and Eve would have literally seen the Lord God kill an animal to cover them with the skin. And immediately they see that covering my shame costs blood. Salvation through blessing, salvation through covenant, salvation through the shedding of blood. And this is something I hope I get to preach on at some point in this series. Salvation through a remnant. We see God do this crazy thing where he's always working opposite of how we think he should work. We think God should come in and run for president and win in a landslide election and have all the money behind him and all the power and all the supporters and all the influencers tweeting and posting TikToks about him. He doesn't care. He actually chooses small, insignificant, laughable things. This is the God who brings the fulfillment of a, of, of a promise to one man to bring a nation to him through a woman who can't bear children. It's like, I will always do things, God says, through the small things. And at every point when we're inclined to say, hey man, God has bankrupted his promises. He's not, he's not doing what he said. We see that there's this small remnant in which God is fulfilling his promises. I have so much more I'd love to say, but let me just lay for you in closing. Here's six questions I want you to be able to answer at the end of our time together. Not today, but over the next 11 weeks. And I think Andrew and Sean and all your elders here would agree with this. I mean, Aaron Addison might disagree with it, but it's only because I make fun of him about Dungeons and Dragons. But he would, he would actually agree with it in real life if there weren't other things on the line. Six questions I'd, I'd love and I think we would love for you guys to be able to answer through this series. Question number one, who are you? Who are you? And my gosh, this is a question that receives so much energy and requires so much money and demands so much attention. And what I long for you to see through our time together in Genesis is there is way more about you that's given 
and supplied and established and forever and inviolably true, then you need to purchase or discover or explore or debate. Who you are is actually relatively established. There are givens about you that are glorious, way, way more glorious than you can fathom, way more glorious than you can fathom. In fact, whatever, whoever person it was that coined the phrase meat Legos to describe human beings has no idea about the glorious purposes that God has in creating men and women as image bearers of his eternal glory. You are way more glorious than you've been told. There is way more given about you than you've been told. And there's way more about you to receive and honor than you need to explore and create. That's question number one. Question number two, why do you exist? Why are you here in the first place? What are humans for? The reason why I'm, I'm so desirous of us to be able to answer that question is because if you can answer what you exist for, then when chaos comes and you lose your job, or when cancer diagnosis comes and you realize your life or your spouse's life or your kid's life isn't as long as you thought it was gonna be, when something shifts, when financial ruin comes upon you, you can actually stand up and still fulfill the purposes that you bear as a human being, whether you're in prison or whether you're paralyzed or something else. Like understanding why we're here, what we're for, actually liberates us to make much of our life instead of making much of our navels as we stare at them and try to answer that question. Question number three, what's wrong here? What's broken? Because every single one of us, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, agrees this is not the way it's supposed to be. How do you answer what's wrong? Genesis gives us clear answers about what's wrong here. Question number four, how does what's broken get repaired? Because what's glorious is Genesis doesn't just tell us what's wrong. It tells us how what's wrong gets redeemed and made new. Question number five, who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? You're like, that's a weird question. Man, I'm an American. It's 2023. I belong to no one. No, you belong to all kinds of people. Whose opinion matters in your life? Whose voice is the most loud in your world? Like who or what is taking up rent in your mind? Like when, when you overreact to this situation, what's the reason that like you're carrying with you all the time? Well, man, she said to me in fourth grade, I was never gonna mount to anything and I'll, I'll prove her wrong. I'm like, dude, you're 37. Who do you belong to? Does that person still take up rent in your mind? There's a song I used to listen to in high school all the time. And the chorus was, who do you belong to? I'm sure it's not yourself. Who do you sing love songs to? Because you sing them all day long. And I just wonder, who are the voices? Who are the values? Whose opinion matters? Whose affirmation means something to you? Because that tells you who you belong to. Then question number six, this is where we started. Where are you? Where are you? It's a legitimate question that God is asking every single one of us. It's a legitimate question that God is asking every single one of us 
every single day. It's not a spatial question. God wasn't asking Adam and Eve questions about their location. It's not as if find my phone wasn't operative yet on the first humans and God didn't know. It also wasn't as if Adam and Eve had successfully hidden themselves. They hear the voice of the Lord God in the garden and immediately knowing that something is wrong, they go and hide themselves. But how many of you guys have the joy of having kids that are still young enough that don't know how to hide? They're like, put a pillow over their ear and they think that you can't see them anymore. Like that, that, that's how clever our hiding techniques are before the Lord God. Some of you are hiding in your goodness. Some of us are hiding in our performance. Some of us are hiding in our badness. Some of us are hiding in stuff we buy, stuff we know, stuff we do. But the fact of the matter is, you can't hide from God. You can't hide from him. There's nothing you can do. You can't hide from him in righteousness. You can't hide from him in wickedness. And you may be able to like dull your senses from the reality that he knows where you are for a second, but it doesn't last long. He knows where all of us are. The question, where are you, is not a question of location. It's a question of disposition. It's a question of relationship. It's a question about your heart and your love. And the one whose name is love comes after us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our rebellion, not to rub our noses in it, but to heal us, to help us, to establish us, to clothe us, to restore us. I mean, what I long for us to know and hold fast to is the answer of the question, where are you, actually is a summary of the answers to the first five questions. And that answer is found supremely and finally in the person of Jesus. Jesus establishes our identity. Jesus establishes and fulfills our vocation. Jesus tells us what's wrong with our lives and with the world. And he himself steps into our world to bear the wrath of God for sin in our place. He's the solution to what's wrong. Jesus is the answer to all of these questions. And he lived and died and rose again so that we wouldn't be under the slavery of sin, but could be bought with a price and belong to the God who loves us, who created us, who, who pursues us, and who established and upholds the entire cosmos according to his loving good purposes. Pray with me. Jesus, that's the name that I want to just resound through our hearts this morning. Father, when you declare in the curse in the garden and in the blessing in the garden that there will come one from the seed of woman that will crush the head of the accuser, we know his name. His name's Jesus Jesus, I long for us to see you, to hear you, to run to you because of this beginning and ending and worldview establishing reality of Genesis. I want Genesis to cultivate in all of us a deeper understanding of who we are in you forever.
I realize it's a tall ask, but it's what we need. And it's what you offer us forever. Would you open our eyes this morning, not just in this 11 weeks in Genesis, open our eyes this morning. Soften our hearts, make our minds hospitable to the truth of your word. In fact, your word tells us that unless our dead hearts are made alive, we can't receive your word. So we don't just need to be more open-minded, we need to be made alive. Would you do that in us, I pray, now and in the weeks to come as we submit to your word together. And it's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that I pray all these things. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gave us a meal. And the meal was given as this unbelievably beautiful, potent, comprehensive reminder of all that God is, of all that he was, and all that he will be forever, and all that we need. So as he sat at dinner with his disciples, Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you. A new covenant, there's that word again, for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this, all of you, in remembrance of me. And then Jesus says, as often as we're together, we should eat this meal. This meal brings us back to square zero and helps answer all the questions that we're really asking. Who's God? Who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with me? How does what's wrong with me get healed? Where are we headed? Jesus says, eat this and remember that I'm the answer to all those questions. And he says, eat this together, not to nourish your stomachs. This is a faith meal. He says, you'll, you'll declare all that I am in my life, my death and resurrection, and you'll remember that I'm coming back again to eat this meal with you. So if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus and you've been baptized to publicly declare, this is who I am, come and eat this meal with us. Celebrate the goodness of all Jesus is for us forever. If you're here and you're not a Christian, don't eat this meal. I don't say that to make you feel weird. I say that to make you feel welcome. Our hope is you could feel free enough here that you wouldn't need to pretend or perform or act like you believe something that you didn't. And don't eat this meal like it's magic. It's not. It's just bread and wine. In fact, the scriptures say this could be damaging to you if you ate it believing it was something it wasn't. We'd rather you take Jesus before you take this meal. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, sit in your seats and pray. We'll have prayers on the screen that will help you talk to God, maybe even for the first time in your life. But whenever you're ready now, the servers are here and ready for you. Come and eat.